Right. Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to the LSE. I'm Simon Glendinning. I'm the director of the Forum for European Philosophy, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this uh, forum dialogue under the title Atheists on Religion. Now, some of you may have noticed that this title, Atheists on Religion, is at least somewhat ambiguous. We might have a situation where, for example, we have two atheists and they're going to talk on the theme religion. Or, alternatively, we might have two philosophers and they're going to talk about atheists on religion. So we'd have two in one, as it were. Or perhaps we could even get a trinity. We could consider this possibility, actually, in fact, defended by certain profoundly shallow atheists, that religion is a kind of, or akin to, a kind of psychoactive drug. So that getting caught up in religion would be like being caught up with heroin or being on heroin. So atheists on religion... <laughs> could also refer to a phenomenon where we have atheists not free of religiosity or under the sway of religious forces. Now that third possibility was actually a central theme for the philosopher Nietzsche, who was as interested in European atheism as he was in European religion. Remember, he, he had his madman bring the news that God is dead to the marketplace but the pronouncement that is brought is brought in the first instance to atheists, to non-believers who happened to be there, and they didn't understand a word he was talking about. And he's interested in that, in that situation of atheists in Europe. Elsewhere he says this, why atheism today? He's not speaking on his own part, he's looking at atheists around him, and he says, why atheism today? The father in God is thoroughly refuted. Likewise the judge or the rewarder Likewise, his free will. He does not hear, and if he heard, he would still not know how to help. And the worst thing is, he seems incapable of making himself clearly understood. Is he himself vague about what he means? These are the things, says Nietzsche, these are the things that in the course of many conversations I have found to be the causes of the decline of European the theism. It seems to me that the religious instinct is, however, in vigorous growth, but that it rejects the theistic answer with profound mistrust. So Nietzsche thinks that the atheism of his day is indeed growing out of a kind of religious instinct, but that what it doesn't trust is this God the Father idea. But, but the rest of it, that's pretty much okay. Well, to discuss whatever it is that's to be discussed under our title, Atheists <coughs> on Religion, we have two distinguished philosophers who are also atheists, and in whom religious instincts may or may not be in vigorous growth. First, we have uh, Tim Crane. Tim has just taken up a safe semi-rural seat, having been for many years the sitting member for Gordon Square West in London. I'd like publicly to express my sadness of losing Tim from philosophy in London, but also warmly to welcome his appointment as Knightbridge Professor of Philosophy at Cambridge it's really wonderful news for him and for Cambridge. Joining Tim is A.C. Grayling, who remains the sitting tenant in his Gower Street constituency from where he has built a small but wonderful media empire <laughs> and an impact factor that leaves the rest of the profession in the shade. 
Professor Grayling was also the team manager for Nietzsche Albion in their stunning 3-1 victory over Graham Taylor's Socrates Wanderers last Sunday, which was a, a reenactment of that famous Monty Python sketch of the Germans versus the Greeks. Quite a triumph, I think, beating a team run by a former England manager. So, atheists on religion, I leave it to you. Well, th thanks very much for being We span a coin before we came on to see which one of us would start. I mean, we're going to have a conversation, but we're each going to have a little turn to uh, pontificate. And uh, the coin was spun and it came up tails, and Tim called heads, so it was my call. And we thought we would have to have another spin because I'm, well, I'm perfectly happy for you to start with you know, the usual thing. If we were twins, we wouldn't get born. So, so anyway, I'm, I'm starting. Uh, I should point out to you that um, the victory of the Nietzsche Albion over the Socrates Wanderers was a triumph of delegation because I have absolutely no knowledge of football whatever being a rugby uh, supporting type. So I picked a captain and told him to take over and the result was splendid as you can see. Uh, finally, uh, Simon, Simon left out one possibility uh, in his taxonomy of, of um, possi possibilities, which we talk about philosophers on atheism and the rest. Uh, that was atheists on atheists on religion. And that's more or less a kind of meta-theoretical starting point. And that's more or less where I think I'll, I'll begin um, by saying as follows, that f first I dislike the term atheism, although I am an atheist. The, the term is a theist's term. It's a, a term about whether or not something exists or should be counted in the universe or attached to it in some way that transcends space and time, some supernatural agency or entity or set of entities that have some significance for us because typically in the traditional historical view of what a religion is, uh, these uh, agencies or this agency has an interest in us, makes a demand or a set of demands of us, uh, typically moral ones, but also um, sometimes related to what we wear and what we eat and who we sleep with and so on. So um, the, the d debate about whether or not there is such a thing is a, a, a debate on the theist's turf. And so I much prefer to describe myself as an afarist or an anomist or an a goblinist or something like that so that we can move the debate onto supernatural entities uh, over which uh, the, 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 there is a rather clearer set of uh, considerations to and fro as to whether or not there are such things and if so what their significance is. Um, and it's not a, a facetious point this, it's an important point because the whole tradition of debate about this matter has always started from the position uh, is there or is there not a deity or a set of deities uh, as if that were the key question and of course the key question is a much prior question to that, that is what, what, what kind of universe is this a metaphysical question about what it contains what the possibilities ontologically are in our universe so that, that's one thing I want to say, the other thing I want to say is uh, oh and by the way in that connection one's looking for a, a, a term an alternative to atheist um, I've toyed with the idea of, of trying to call myself a naturalist, but then people think I run around the woods with no clothes on. Um, so um, I've just fallen back on the old traditional title, free thinker, which I think has quite a, nice, quite a nice ring to it. But the second point that needs to be made is that the debate ab about atheism is only part of a wider debate, aspects of which are intimately connected to the atheism debate, but which are separable from it. Um, because in fact there are three really important nodes in this great quarrel that we have at the moment between P 
people of religion and people who don't have religion. One of them is this metaphysical question, but the second is the secularist question, the question of the place in the public square of religious voices. And uh, here it's tremendously important to notice that in a, generally speaking, liberal with a small l dispensation such as obtains in most Western polities now, it's just, it has to be a premise that religious bodies, religious organizations, religious movements, people of religious sentiment, of course are entitled to their beliefs and entitled to their existence, entitled to organize themselves, and moreover entitled to have their say, to be part of the conversation that a society has with itself about how it should comport itself and what the good is in that society. But the, the, the point is that for traditional reasons, historical reasons, the religious voice in the public square all around the world has been vastly over-amplified and vastly potentiated in all sorts of ways. And take out the example here in England, I say England rather than the United Kingdom, where we have an established church where the public service broadcasting um, outfit runs at least four religious programs a day on public money, where uh, our tax dollars go to faith-based schools, where um, 20, uh, 26 bishops have a right to sit in the House of Lords, and in fact there are more ex-bishops who are now life peers who sit in the House of Lords also, and who vote on and comment on legislation that affects all of us. Uh, and so this is an egregious example of a situation where there is a massively over-amplified, over-inflated presence of uh, people of religious interests in the public square, out of all proportion to what, what they really represent. What they really represent is probably less than 10% of the population who, on a regular, uh, consistent basis, three times a month or more, go to a church or a temple or a synagogue or a mosque. Now, I quite often find myself in uh, panel discussions. This is unusual to be sitting with another atheist and an old chum, Tim. Um, but usually it's a Catholic person, a Jewish person, a Protestant person, a Muslim person, and me. And they didn't bother to ask a woman because I've got the coiffure anyway, so it was about all right. And I always begin the conversation by saying the reason why there are four of them is because they don't agree with one another. And in fact, I've spent most of history killing one another. But, they, but there are four of them here because they're different, four different voices. And yet, they, insofar as they represent anything, they represent a quite small minority of active believers in, the, in their particular faith. And if I represent anything in that panel of five, it's going to be the general uh, secular uh, outlook of people who, whether they have religion or not, don't want to be run by bishops or mullahs or anybody else, but who would like a, a more pluralistic uh, domain and uh, a more equitable distribution of influence to the voices in that domain. So the secularism issue is a very important one. Actually, it's the crucial one at the moment, because at the moment what's happening is that the uh, religious voices in the, in, in public in the public square are much, much more amplified than they have been for a long time. They've been given a free pass for a very long time. The Church of England, a very good example, has been running its schools and broadcasting its programs on BBC and uh, opening Parliament and giving prayers at the beginning of every session of Parliament and the rest for decades and decades without anybody really noticing. They were sort of Laodicea. We didn't mind them. They didn't seem to do much harm. The vicar, the local village green, that, well, that kind of thing seemed pretty safe. But events of the last decade, and especially the atrocities in the United States in, in 2001, have brought vividly into focus the fact that there are these significant and influential presences in the public domain. And it has made people who are impatient with that at last speak out. 
It used to be the case that you, if you met somebody at a dinner party who uh, proclaimed a religious commitment, well, firstly, it would seem like bad taste to do that. You wouldn't generally speak about religion at a dinner party any more than you would about your sex life, so it was more or less kept in the background. But if somebody did do it, well, you, you kind of pussyfooted around it. Somebody once said to me, dealing with a Christian is a bit like meeting somebody who's had a recent death in the family, which is very apropos. So you, <laughs> you, um, you, you kind of, you know, a bit, bit of cotton wool and you, you manage to get around it. But now the terms of the debate have changed and people are no longer really prepared to put up with it. All of a sudden, it looks as though the men in all their regalia and their robes and the rest, and of course they're, they're men mainly, um, are like the Wizard of Oz. You know, really it's just a little guy in a pair of underpants behind a great big cardboard cut-out thing that makes them look important and special. And they're no longer prepared to, to, buy, to buy that. And so they're saying, let your, let, you, you, what you must do is you must realize that you are a self-constituted interest group who represents a certain point of view. You have your right to exist, your right to your say, but no more than that. And what we want to see you is to you know, diminish down your proportions and the degree of amplification of your view must be genuinely proportional to what you are and, and what people think of you in society. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing, very briefly, is what, what I call, the small, in a small age sense, a, a humanistic outlook on the world. This is the ethical dimension of thinking about the nature of, of a good and flourishing and well-lived life, of our relationships with one another, our duties and obligations to one another, the care that we take for our, our fellow human beings in the world and in society. Uh, and the, the ethical question has, of course, been hijacked for centuries by the religions. They alone possess... Uh, our spirituality, our emotional response to beauty and, and to love and to the world around us, they alone have uh, authority to, to um, uh, pontificate on, on matters of ethics. No, the, the humanistic tradition, which in fact is a very deeply rooted and ancient one, all the way back to classical antiquity into the thought of the, of the, the Greek ethical schools, is, is a very rich treasure house of insight into the nature of humankind and human experience. And it invokes nothing from the religious traditions. It doesn't, it doesn't claim any kind of religious sanction or authority, and it doesn't claim that you're going to get rewards when you're dead if you behave this way rather than that way. And instead, it focuses on human existence, human experience in this human-sized world of ours now and all the demands that that makes on us. And it's important that the, that, that strand of debate about a genuine ethics that runs with the grain of human nature uh, and is about us now in, in our world should have a, a revived and refreshed presence in the debate because the religions have, have hijacked it for far too long. So atheism sits alongside the secularism issue and the humanism issue. It's part of that whole debate, uh, and it's the, it's the metaphysical part of that debate. It's about what you think there is and what kind of world there is. That's how I see it, and um, if anybody wants to know what, what, what I think further about any of those matters, I'm perfectly happy to say. That's it. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Anthony. Um, in the style of our recent um, presidential debates on TV, I'd really like to say, I agree with Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> but that wouldn't get us very far. And actually, so fortunately, I don't. Well, I agree with, with, with some things, but not with others. I mean, um, I think um, I don't mind the term atheist. Um, I have no difficulty with characterizing some of my views as being defined by something that I don't believe in, or that the rules of the game are set by something I don't believe in, um, you know, I'm, if you're against torture, then um, I'm, I'm proud to be against torture, even though I think torture is a, 
is a is a negative thing and torturous, setting the terms of the debate. So I'm not I'm not worried about the word atheism as an atheist. I just and, and I, I think we can both agree that atheism is just the denial of God. And the comparison with with fairies and garden gnomes and thinks uh, Anthony thinks is is not frivolous. I think kind of intellectually maybe not, theoretically not, but historically, um, when you when you call yourself a, an atheist, you are setting yourself against the dominant traditions, say, of Western civilization. Um, and so there is some, something more significant about that than, than saying you're, a, um, uh, than just saying you're, anti you're against, you don't believe in garden gnomes or something. Um, so, but I think atheism is a boring doctrine, uh, is of no interest. Uh, once, you've, once you've made up your mind and you've decided, um, there's, nothing, there's very little that follows from atheism. Um, I don't think there's any particular moral outlook associated with atheism. Um, I don't think atheism implies any moral outlook. I don't think atheism implies humanism. I think it's just a thoroughly negative doctrine uh, and not one I'm, I'm proud of or that I want to rejoice in, as Richard Dawkins likes to say he likes to rejoice in his atheism. I don't want to... Rejoicing is for the religious. I don't rejoice. I just accept the world as, as I think it is. So we could put atheism to one side, and the more interesting phenomenon is not atheism but religion. And um, so the question I like, I, I'm interested in is, what attitude should one have to religion if one is an atheist? Um, and by attitude, I mean both a theoretical attitude of what you should think about religion and a practical attitude of what you should try and do about it. Um, and one way in which I, I think I disagree with Anthony, although we, we may agree more than we think, um, but I certainly disagree with a lot of the the books by the um, four or five horsemen of the atheist apocalypse who've, uh, who've been writing stuff recently, Dawkins and, and others, um, so they take an attitude to religion which is theoretically and pract practically um, combative. Um, it's theoretically combative because they, they, s they have a certain conception of what religion is. They see it as false and irrational um, and that the, and that they deal with that by, pro by providing arguments against um, the, the, what they see as the most important content of religion. So, they, so the, 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 the humanists, as I'll call them, using Anthony's word, of course humanism has meant many things, but I'm going to call um, those writers, and I think we all know who they are, they'll call them the humanists, or the new atheists, as, as someone calls them. I'm not quite sure why they're new, in fact, because, but except that they're not that old. And <laughs> I mean, it's a bit like the neo-cons. I'm not quite sure why they're supposed to be neo, but, you know. Yeah. The, um, the new atheists think of religion in a certain way, and that's, that's something I want to question. They think of it, in, and I'll say what that is in a second. Um, the practical attitude that they have is that, to as large an extent as possible, it would be a good thing to eliminate religion, and that we should attempt to do eliminate either religion or its influence as far as we can. Yeah. Now, so, so there's a the theoretical attitude and the practical attitude. The theoretical attitude that they have to religion is that religion is largely a cosmological matter, that it's about the universe, the world, how the world is. Um, and um, it, 
so that's why Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, contains so much argument against, uh, of a philosophical kind, against um, various arguments for the existence of God. Um, I'm, I'm not going to criticize those arguments. I think a lot of them are perfectly good. Um, but it seems to me that when you there's a fact that needs to be explained, which is that this debate is the one feature of this debate is that it's intransigent, it's not going anywhere. The the atheists say things against the religious. Uh, the religious say you misunderstand us completely. The atheists say no, we don't. This is what you say. The religious say you don't understand religion, and no one gets anywhere. And no one, I I. I would propose this as a hypothesis that almost no one is converted by any of these arguments. Almost no one. Almost no one is converted from Christianity to atheism by reading the books <coughs> by Richard Dawkins. When I say almost no one, I mean you know, maybe there are a few hundred people, but it's not the, the, the approach that is being taken it clearly isn't working, and it's an interesting question why? Why are people talking past each other? Um, the, religious, the atheists will say um, the religious are irrational. You can't persuade them. You can't get any sense into the heads of these people. Um, so there's one view that they have, that religion is fundamentally irrational. If religion is irrational and the people who believe in religion are irrational, then there's no way you can persuade them by rational arguments. So Dawkins' book um, was a waste of time. Um, so, but, so maybe, he's, maybe the target is wrong. Maybe this isn't what religion is. And this is what a lot of the religious writers say when they respond to their, to their critics like Antony in, in, his, in his book Against All Gods and his other writings. Um, so I, I want to examine a different way, a more realistic way of thinking about religion, looking at which would explain why people are unmoved by these arguments and by why, why the people talk past each other. Um, and I think to understand a world view, you have to understand not it's not just a matter of listing a bunch of things that people say. You have to understand what's at the center of it, what's at the core of it, and what's just peripheral. Um, and although I think religion does have a... For one thing I should just say, talking about religion, of course, is a huge generalization. There are many, many different things, and I'm sure we both agree that many different things have come under the heading of religion, and it's very hard to find one thing that, that, that fits, them, fits them all. But um, let's talk about the central traditions that we're familiar with in our, in our culture. Um, and it seems to me that what's central to that tradition is not, it, not cosmology in the sense of as if it was a hypothesis, right? as, if, as if what religion is is an attempt to explain the world in the way that science is an attempt to explain the world. Um, I, I believe that religion in, in, that, in that sense is not a hypothesis. Um, it does contain factual claims, um, but it's not an attempt to explain the world in the way that science is. Um, and that's because I think, um, well, <coughs> that's because I think that um, the main content of religious belief is, um, arises from a certain kind of impulse, which is a feeling that the world actually is inexplicable or ineffable and that there is something in the world which we can't explain. Uh, and th this isn't all that there is. Um, there's more to it than this. And this, this expression of what I call a religious impulse is articulated through 
certain kinds of rituals and certain kind of repeated actions which are supposed to um, enforce in people and build in people a sense of the ineffable mystery of the world. Um, the ineffable mystery of the world and also the ineffable structure of the world because there is a view, I think, that you know, that, that a very important part of re religion as we think of it is that, is that the world has a certain kind of order. Um, but I don't think that's like a hypothesis. And I think, that that ex I think that's why when you challenge a religious believer to say, you know, explain the Trinity. Three persons in one God. How can three things be one? You know, this, is what, this is what philosophers like to do. Say, three things can't be one, you know. That's just a mistake. It's a mistake of logic. And you explain this to them, and it is a mistake. It's, it's, it's a contradiction. It doesn't make any sense. And they're unbothered by this because it's a mystery. That talking about the Trinity is, is a kind of expression that, the, that this aspect of the world is fundamentally mysterious to us. So I think that idea that the world has is a sense as the world as a whole is mysterious to us is at the heart of a lot of religion, or Christianity anyway, I'll say, which is the only thing I really know anything about. Um, the other thing I think is very important in religion is, 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 is the, the matter of practice and the identification of people who recognize, of, with other people who share your practices and share your history and share your sense of belonging to a certain tradition. Now, as Anthony points out, it, it, this can be a very dangerous thing, uh, but it's a very human thing. Um, and what I believe, I'm talking for too long here, and Simon's going to tell me off, but uh, what I believe is that you won't eliminate that, that feeling, either the, the, that feeling of uh, identification or that sense of um, the ineffability or, or the mystery of the world, you won't eliminate that by providing rational arguments against the existence of God. So that's, and that's why the debate isn't going anywhere. Um, and it's not surprising that the debate isn't going anywhere because most people aren't interested in hypotheses. Most people aren't interested in metaphysics. But many, many people are religious. Um, so that combination of facts should cause us to pause and think maybe religion is not a quasi-scientific hypothesis about the world, but rather some, something else. Now, as for the question of secularism, I agree with a lot of what Anthony says, except that I, I'm just more, I think this is, these questions are very specific to specific societies, and I think that in our society, we're a massively secular society, um, and um, we're going, becoming even more secular. And I think that the presence of bishops in the House of Lords, the presence of an established church, and the presence of thought for the day on Radio 4 um, are not evidence that I mean, they're, they're irrelevant, I think, to, to the secularization of society. So I, I don't feel that we're under threat in this country from, from um, uh, religion. And, and if you look at a country where people are much more religious than the United States, religion is a much more dominant force. That's a country where they have the explicit separation of church and state. So I just think here we rather than thinking in terms of principles we just have to look at um, the concrete analysis of the concrete situation as, as comrade Lenin once said um, so uh, I, I think I'll stop there I've been talking far too much so. well if I could if uh, it's right to pick up a couple of points uh, Tim's made I mean I think Tim is absolutely right in his opening remarks about atheism uh, somebody's being an atheist 
that fact doesn't, doesn't imply anything else. It's just like not collecting stamps. The fact that you don't collect stamps doesn't mean that you therefore play cricket or, or you know, collect uh, um, playing cards or something. Uh, that, that's right. Although there is a, a, a quite natural connection between being an atheist and when you think about the ethical, uh, to think broadly speaking in humanistic terms. So again, with the small h, Tim's right that that term has been used for many different things, but it's common acceptation in the debate today is to, to be thinking uh, about the basis of, of, uh, of ethics um, in a way that makes no use of uh, invocations of the divine or divine command or anything like that. And it might also, if you were um, uh, an atheist, or there, no doubt there are some atheists who think it's frightfully important that uh, there should be uh, religious voices in the public square, and perhaps even in the government and so on, but generally speaking, that's unlikely. Still, but there's no entailment, so I agree with that, and that, that's absolutely right. On the question of fairies, I, I just have a point of, of um, history here, that one reason why the Church of England, one reason, there were a number of others, everything's always overdetermined, but one reason why they set up their primary schools in the 19th century was to combat the incredibly widespread belief in the existence of the little people. This is not just the Irish thing, you know, the Irish lady asked if she believed in leprechauns, and she said, I do not but they're there anyway. I mean, everybody knows that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, all through the 19th century, the, the, the ordinary folk thought that all their pinches and tickles and missing shoelaces and the spoon that they couldn't find had been stolen by the fairies. There were very, very wide, genuine belief in them. In fact, the fairies were a much more uh, present force in people's lives than God was in those days, and the Church of England was a bit fed up about it, naturally. So they f f partly founded their primary schools in order to combat what they called superstition. Now, a rich irony there, but that, that's what they did. And they managed to get rid of, of the fairies, uh, fairly successful in a reasonably short order. So the, the fairies are not a... An, an inconsiderable point. Um, I must take issue with, with Tim, though, on, on this business about the arguments, the atheist arguments not working. That isn't the case, in fact. There are loads of people that one encounters, and it may even be we'll, we'll have some people standing up giving their conversion experiences here, who say they were changed by, by arguments that they were given. And I've met a number of such people. I've even indeed been instrumental in converting some people away from, from religion, and then a little voice says in my ear, woe be unto him who is a stumbling block to the least of these. You know, so that's a bit of an anxiety. But anyway, it, it does happen. And, and, and the fact is, the reason why there is, the, and another question of overdetermination here, but one of the reasons why there is this this bad-tempered quarrel between the, the religious and the non-religious in our contemporary world is that the religions in general are on the back foot, that the secularizing tendency in the world that uh, Tim rightly says applies here, applies everywhere, even applies in the United States of America. Just have to look at the Pew polling results uh, over the years, over the last couple of decades, to be astonished to see that the number of people who self-describe as having no religious commitment as being agnostic or atheist has doubled in the last 15 years. And the largest, uh, um, the group in which the largest movement towards uh, non-religious um, non affiliation is in people under the age of 35. And the the, the explanation that one might seek to give, the analysis of why it is that there, there seems to be a resurgence of interest in religion or, or a, a great upsurge in this debate of which this is, is part this evening, is not that religion is making a comeback, but that religion feels threatened, that people of religion 
are, are anxious about the globalizing effect of, of secularization. You can easily imagine and sympathize with the dilemma of a, a father of teenage daughters in a Muslim-majority country who's just seen an American movie in which there are lots of girls running around in bikinis, or perhaps not even that, and so he's very worried about the effect that this might have on, on his youngsters. And that, that anxiety, that fear, could, if there's a groundswell of it, translate into some people, those on the extreme, those with a very passionate uh, conviction, those who know the Western world, because very often people who are in the West, who live here, born here, or who have been educated here uh, in, in the West, who take action, who want to combat this influence and to <coughs> strike back at it. And so you, you, you see the phenomenon of an upsurge of, of uh, activity and of, of um, vociferousness when people feel in a corner. And that may very well be what's happening in our world today. We may be seeing sort of the death throes of, of religion as a major force in, in, in the public square in lots of parts of the world. And there is an historical precedent for it. It's the 16th and 17th century following the Reformation, when the Church of Rome lost its grip over the mind and the tithes of, of Europe and wanted to get them back. What did they do? They fought. The wars of religion in France in the 16th century and the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century were the bloodiest struggles that Europe had ever seen. The Thirty Years' War uh, caused the death of one in every three German-speaking people on the continent of Europe. It was the most terrible war. And this was because the church was losing power and it was fighting back and it was trying to get control back again. The, the, the phenomenon of, of uh, um, violence and, and uh, uh, quarrel and vigorousness and the fur flying and the blood flowing is a, a phenomenon of, of loss, of defeat. And we may very well be viewing that in, in the world today. And one shouldn't underestimate that possibility. My analysis might be utterly wrong, but uh, you know, just looking at all the auguries, that, that's how it seems to be to me. And finally, on, on the point about the, the use of, of religion as capturing and, and satisfying a, a yearning, a felt need of response to the mystery of the world, I made the point in my, my opening remarks <coughs> that the religions <coughs> have, have hijacked a great part of what it is to be a human being. And it, perhaps the most central thing about being human is that one has rich emotional needs and responses to other people, to this world that we occupy. Our sympathies are engaged, our need for love and companionship is, is very deep, and the way that we thrill at, at, at beauty at you know, sunset over the sea. That, that those things are about the spirit of, of human beings. I mean it in a secular sense, so the combination of, of thought and feeling, which is our totalizing response to the world and our sense of connection to it and to other people. And this has been, as I said, hijacked by the religions. They lay claim to our deepest and broadest and highest and widest spiritual responses. And therefore, those of us here in this room, probably very few of us have ever thought that going for a walk in the country or having a drink with friends at a village pub or, or just lying in the sun or listening to music, these are spiritual exercises. These are things of, the, of our spirit, of our emotions, which if we re-describe them as such, if we understood them as such, they're part of the recreation of, of, our, of ourselves uh, as uh, um, we, we rest from our labors or as we make contact with people we care about. Th these are things of the spirit which 
in China and in, the, in, in today's China, most people, and in the, the world before Christianity, was recognized, acknowledged, and, and people wrote poetry about it, and Horace and Ovid did, without it being a religious thing, without it being a thing that you only experience on Sundays or at Easter. Uh, it, was, it was something that was understood in a much broader context. And what, what's happened in the, the hijacking of this into the religions, the sense of the response to the ineffability and mystery of the world, is that actually it has turned into um, you know, a rather tired and, and um, I, I think, dishonest argument, the, the so-called argument about the gaps, what we don't understand. And I call this the Fred move. Okay? We don't understand something. We haven't worked it out yet. We haven't done enough science yet. There's a lot of things that are unclear to us yet. And so we say, well, Fred did it. You know, Fred is, well, that's just an arbitrary name, God. God created the world. Where the hell did the world come from? Oh, well, Fred made it, as if that ends anything. And all it does, in fact, is just to put the mystery back one further step. And the problem with that is that it too cheaply and quickly you know, ends the discussion. There's a, there's a very, very significant difference between a scientific mindset and a religious mindset. A scientific mindset is perfectly happy um, not to know certain things because it can go and try and find out. It can live with open-endedness and, and uh, um, not, not being satisfied with creating more problems or raising more questions that the more that you inquire, uh, feeling that there is a kind of open texture to things. Whereas the religious mindset, not untypically, is one which wants a neat story. It's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. We know where we came from and we know where we're going. Moreover, it can be explained pretty quickly and simply, about 20 minutes, I think, for Christianity. It takes about three years to master the foundations of physics. And there's a very, very big difference between these two ways of thinking. And the trouble is that the, the religious story f feeds a need. You know, we are narrative-seeking creatures. We want a story. We want an explanation. Tim says, it's not about explanation, it is. Religions provide explanations. Where did I come from? And the, the, finally, the, the secularism point is this. All our kids believe in the Tooth Fairy, Father Christmas, and God until the age of 10 or 11. The Tooth Fairy goes with the last of the milk teeth, and Father Christmas fades out after a little bit. But the God thing persists. Why? Because there is massive social reinforcement. Tim thinks that the Church of England is harmless. Well, maybe it, maybe it is. I'm the only atheist I know who's personally friendly with three archbishops in this country. They're all lovely blokes. Uh, we, have, we have terrific uh, quarrels about these things. But, but they're, they're not harmless because uh, they, it, it, even in their rather gentle, you know, village green sort of way, uh, keep, keep, on, keep open this possibility that you can stop thinking and be lazy and just say, oh, well, Fred did it. Just do the Fred move and, and everything's sorted out. Or when you're grieving or lonely or you've suffered failure or something, you, you go back to it as a resource, as something which will support you and, and, uh, and keep you safe. Uh, whereas what you really ought to be doing is um, demanding of your fellows in society that their comradeship in this business of life should be what gives, uh, gives support. Anyway, that's my uh, response to Tim's point. Tim will have the last word on this yeah. round. Can I ask you for a glass of water? Yeah, of course. Um, yes. Um, yes. Thanks, Anthony. I, well, yes. I, let me say something about the fairies, because I think actually that illustrates what I want to... what. Uh, the point I want to make about what religion is. So what I'm, what I'm trying to do is to understand what the phenomenon is, because I think it, so we, can only we can only understand the religious predicaments, that, and the, the religious, uh, anti-religious predicament that we're in at the moment in, in this country and elsewhere, if we know what it is that religion is. 
Um, and I'm skeptical of some of the things Anthony said about what, what religion is. And see, in the case of the fairies, um, I, I didn't know that, that this was one of the reasons why churches were introduced to schools for children. But supposing they did go around saying, well, something you lost something, you say the little people took it. And, and supposing you probed them, you asked them further, and you said, where are the little people? How big are they? How big, how big are they? Uh, how fat are they? What, where would I find them? What are they made of? And you, you wouldn't get an answer to those questions. Just as with Father Christmas, and if you ask a child, so Father Christmas is at the North Pole, does that mean if you go to the North Pole, he'll be there? How does he live in these mi minus 40 degrees temperature? How does he survive? Does he have electric heating? They don't care. You don't, it, that's why I say it's not meant to be an explanation. Of course, broadly speaking, it's an answer to the question, you know, why am I here? Well, you say God made me. In that sense, an explanation, I agree. But it's not the kind, it's not the scientific, it's not a bad form of the scientific impulse. It's something else. That's what I, that's my view about this. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that's what it is. Um, and it's, and, and the point, just one point about what you said about our fee, spiritual, what you call the spiritual feelings. I, I agree that we have those feelings. I, I was trying to pin down, and I agree that religion has tried to monopolize them. I was trying to pin down something slightly more specific. It wasn't just the, our sense of awe if we look at the Matterhorn or something, or um, if you're in America, you look at a pizza and you say it's awesome, you know. But in, <laughs> <laughs> but in, you know, in Switzerland, you look you might, at the Matterhorn. You might see the face of Jesus in it. Not just that kind of sense of awe at nature, or the, or the, just the pleasure of people's company, breaking bread with friends, or whatever. I mean, something much more specific, which is, which is this idea that the world is fundamentally mysterious, and that's something to be celebrated. Or rather than, and I, th I think that's the religious impulse. I don't have that impulse. I don't find the world fundamentally mysterious. Or if I do, it's just the fact that it's a fact. You know, it's that the world is. is you know, you know, it, it seems very reductive to respond to that by saying, actually, I don't, I don't quite agree that, that there is this special thing which is the religious impulse to, you know, to respond to the, a particular kind of ineffability in things. And, and I, uh, my reason for being sceptical about it is partly an historical one, which is that if you think about it, that the great religions of today, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, all of them, even Hinduism, which is probably the oldest of them, are all very young religions. I mean, they date back two or three thousand years. Historical terms, in the terms of human history, they're very young religions. And there's, that they share something which is interesting, and it's this. Everything that we know about religion in most of human history is that it wasn't religious. It wasn't about supernatural entities. It was about agencies in nature. It was about the wood nymphs and the water nymphs and the sprites and the things that make nature work. And as such, by the way, they, they were very much a matter of proto-science. They were an attempt to try and explain uh, by projecting into nature our own felt capacity as agents <coughs> to make things happen, to be, to, be, uh, to, to be causative in nature. And so these were projections from our own experience as a way of trying to get a frame of, 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 uh, framework of thinking about the world. And it looks like, if you, if you look at the development of, the, of, of today's uh, great religions, how they emerge from that tradition, it looks as if it went something like this, and this is a caricature, but it, it you know, captures a lineament. 
that as people's understanding and as people's technological capacity to deal with aspects of nature increased, so these agencies moved away from the trees and the streams and the wind and the walking on the clouds to make a thundering noise, and they, they went off to more remote places, mountaintops. I mean, the, the, the god of uh, the Old Testament, the early Yahweh of the Old Testament, was a volcano god. He was a pillar of smoke by day and a burning bush on a mountaintop. Uh, and he was up in the mountaintop, it was remote and what have you. And when the first intrepid individual got to the mountaintop and peeked around, there was no deity there. Well, the natural thing to think was that he wasn't on the mountaintop, but he was a bit higher up. Uh, you know, he was the sun or he was in the sky. Uh, and then, you know, we've managed to send balloons up and planes up. And, but anyway, a long time before then, the, the deities went from the sky beyond space and time. So the, the trajectory followed by the deities over the course of history has been getting further and further away from the surface of planet Earth, quite, quite literally and geographically. I mean, we, we, we talk about you know, God, as Jesus, ascending into heaven. I mean, this was you know, a gain of altitude. It was a non-figurative view, uh, which was an attempt to try to retain thinking about these things out of a tradition in which they'd actually been, been part of nature. And for that reason, one thinks that the, the sorts of things that, that uh, very inspired and very eloquent and moving religious teachers say about the religious experience, which is mystery, ineffability, the numinous, uh, you know, deep, you know, Julian of Norwich, I mean, all these mystical writers, is a, a recent phenomenon. It's not, a, not something which is natural to, you know, I don't know how many people here who are uh, religious or feel that they've had these deeply, profoundly mystical experiences. It's pretty easy to induce them. I mean, you just become a Sufi and spin around and then you can induce them in a bit or have a drink or smoke a spliff or something. There are all sorts of reasons why in the past people who had uh, um, eaten uh, fermented foodstuffs without realizing it or the wrong kind of mushroom or had had a fever or somebody hit them on the head with a stone, they would have met the gods in, in those circumstances and, and thought that it was a, a real experience, a genuine experience, and imported that into their thinking about the world. But the mystical, the, the, the numinous, this, this ineffability, um, you know, that, that is a phenomenon of much, much more recent, very, very late on in the story of religious experience. You look at the Romans. The Romans thought the Christians were atheists because they would not accept participation in the public observance. Religion comes from a Latin word, religere, which means to bind. And the public religion of the Roman Empire was one where if everybody went and signed up to the public processions, it was for social cohesion and for political unity of the empire. People didn't go back and pray to Zeus or, or the Emperor Augustus at home. They had their lares and penates, true, but these were sort of touchwood superstitions. They weren't, they weren't anything like the religions that we're familiar with now. And that, that's why I respond to you by saying that I'm not sure that we haven't manufactured this psychological state of connection with the, the mystical, for which we need Westminster Abbey, St. Paul's Cathedral, St. Peter's in Rome, and uh, all their influence in the world. I'm sure we haven't manufactured it, yeah. I agree with that. That's very interesting. I mean, um, I'm trying to identify something that people think about, about the world and what they think is important about religion, and, and I'm trying to understand why they are indifferent to evidence. And intelligent people who are very intellectually sophisticated are indifferent to questions of evidence, and they don't care about that. That's not important for them. Um, plenty of religious people, uh, people, I mean, pl plenty, for example, of vicars and priests mm. don't actually believe 
the, the doctrines of their church. That's true. That's true too, and that's an important thing. So I, that's why I think you know the the element that you mentioned in Roman mm. Roman religion is incredibly important. Mm. That it's a form of bonding on identification. If you think of Judaism, there's a lot a lot of it's like that. A lot. Um, it's the cosmological element of Judaism is very very minimal, if even non-existent. And I also think actually the cosmological element in Christianity is. In, I mean, one par a, a parody of what Christians believe is that you are made by God, you live on earth, God loves you, if you do the right thing, then you go to heaven. If people really believed that, then they would behave very differently. If they really believed that, that they may, or I mean, let's take the Catholic version where you actually, you, you were told you would go to hell if you committed a mortal sin, if, unless God in his infinite mercy, blah, blah, blah. If people really believe that, they would behave, in, they would behave completely differently than they actually do. So I, that's why I think that's not a very important, that's not a very central aspect. I think you know, religious funerals are, are very sad and melancholy things. If the view presented was you know, that what religious people believe is that they all go to heaven after they die, uh, or at least to purgatory, hang around a bit, and then, then get to heaven on the last day, it, if that's what they really believed, religious funerals should be a lot happier than they are. Mm -hmm. But they're not. They're ter terribly, terribly sad, like all funerals. So I don't. This is why there's much evidence that that cosmological side of things, a human creation as it is, and, and maybe a, you, you told just so story about how it came about, which is, makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, that the, what's the, in the cosmological side, the cosmological side of things does not play a very important role in that. Um, I mean, I should say, I'm not saying that religious experiences are real or something like that, or that this sense of the ineffability of the world is necessarily tied to any particular experience. It's just that I think that's more important than the idea that if you go to church for nine first Fridays of the month, then you're guaranteed ten days off in purgatory, which is what I was told when I was young. So, or so many days. Do you see what I mean? I, I, I do. I, I take your point, and, and of course you're, you're right about it. I think what, what I'm resisting is the idea that there, in some way this is ineliminable. That if people were to recognize their tribal loyalty to their football team and what they feel when they're at the football ground, as we all felt last Sunday, by the way, with Nietzsche, Albion supporters, uh, you know, that, that sense of cohesion, that sense of belonging, um, patriotism in a time of conflict, of war, you know, people pull together. Not that you would think that they did if you watched Foyle's War on television. Everybody seemed to be doing everybody else down in the, during the course of the Second World War. But you know, all that, that, that sense of cohesion, of, of togetherness, of, of brotherhood, of fellowship among human beings in special circumstances um, is part of that kind of phenomenon. Uh, solidarity is really what it's about, I suppose. And I suppose religion in the past was the only resource for that. I mean, if you were an illiterate peasant who never travelled more than a couple of miles from your village and your only theatre was mass on Sunday and your only art was the murals on the walls which told you what would happen to you if you didn't obey the priest and pay your tithes and so on, then you know, your whole mindset and your whole capacity for cohesion with others would have been defined by that and your life would have been shaped by it. I think my, my, my point is that, that there is a kind of fundamental dishonesty that runs through the, the, uh, you know, the religious package you talk about funerals. You know, there will be people there who would have ceased to be literalist as they were in childhood about God having a long white beard and heaven being a place, but who nevertheless will want want to be solaced by the thought that they would meet their loved ones again. That seems to me dishonest. And uh, you know, the truth matters. 
in a way. And, and it would be when people say, how can you take away religious comfort from you know, old lonely people or, or people who are suffering or something? How can you do that? My response is to say, I would much rather it were that their fellow human beings gave them comfort and, and affection and, and, uh, and held them in their arms. So that would be a better thing than that we sold them a whole lot of stories. Because, of course, the, these stories you know, have been very significant throughout history. One reason why the ecclesiastical powers and the temporal powers have been in bed together for so long, sometimes literally, was that um, the, the idea of an invisible policeman who watched everything you did always, even when you were in bed on your own at night, was a powerful kind of policeman. You're dead right that you know, we've, we've now got CCTV cameras to do it because they're obviously public. They've given up the idea of the all-seeing God and so on. That, that's true. But, but that was the idea. It was a way of, of uh, managing uh, people as well by selling them the story. But the story went deep into their personal lives. And even today, people who were brought up as you were, you know, that do a novena and you might be lucky. Um, you know, that, that's very manipulative. And, and I, as I say, I think dishonest. Yeah, I don't disagree that it's manipulative, yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I suppose, I, I just to perhaps to sum up, Simon, maybe we should sum up at this point and then have a discussion. Um, I suppose, um, although I'm a, I'm a philosopher and I believe in, in the value of truth, um, I think what's important for people, that sometimes happiness is more important than truth. And if I think that if, 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 living a religious life can contribute towards people's happiness, that's not necessarily a bad thing, even if it's based on a falsehood. So I don't, I, I don't, um, I mean, it, it's very different, in diff different cases, different kind of religions, different kind of falsehoods, it, it depends, but um, uh, it seems to me that the, the, the cosmological falsehoods, the, what, what's often so much more important to people, and why I'm sceptical that, that they will entirely wither away, is um, the tradition of bonding with a certain kind of a certain kind of group, and um, the cosmological falsehoods aren't that important in that scheme of things. So that's that's my general view, I suppose. Although I, I do agree with a lot of what you say. Well, the the noble lie, you know, has has a a, a great a long tradition, uh, and, and I accept that there will be people always who share that view that it would be better in the interests of promoting happiness or contentment or a sense of security, uh, that we don't tell everybody the truth. I mean, supposing you were in charge of uh, government information and there was an unavoidable, very large meteor headed this way, you know, would you tell everybody or would you keep quiet about it? It's uh, that kind of dilemma, isn't it? But, but, the, but the thing is that... I don't think... No, it isn't, actually. <laughs> <laughs> really I, I, I'm really not sure we're all that it is all that different. <laughs> no, because we're all heading for the same place anyway, so there's not... Um, whether but look if you were to, to you know if you take a step back and you have a look at at some of the long strands that, that run through this this whole debate now I sometimes say to people who are committed to the Christian story which is God makes mortal maid pregnant she gives birth to a, an egregious figure who does extraordinary things goes to the other world comes out joins his father now this, of course, is what Zeus was doing with mortal maids all the time. Okay, so Hercules was an egregious figure, born of Alcmene and Zeus, who went to the underworld, came back, joined his father in heaven, and so on. You say to a Christian, why is the Christian story true, and all those myths not? Why do you govern your life by it, place your hopes on it, take comfort from it, when, in, in fact, it's just a version of a, of a very standard trope in Middle Eastern mythology? Uh, and, and then when you explain 
how you know in, in those in those days people couldn't understand genius or creativity, and so they attributed attributed it to the action of the gods on a human individual. Inspiration being the ins breathing in of of, uh, of, of that, um, uh, you know that that. That, that way of trying to explain those things has come to have a, a much inflated significance in our thinking about religious revelation and prophecy and the authority of, of uh, people who claim contact with the gods. And if you look at other stories too, I mean, why, why is it, for example, that we have the morality, the sexual morality that we do in our society? Well, it stems ultimately from the fact that the, the Jewish people were a herding people and reproduction mattered. It was a matter of life and death that their flock should increase. So the seed must go only to impregnation and mustn't be spilled on the ground as with Onan. This is why homosexuality had been persecuted and people put to death for centuries and centuries because of goats and sheep. You know, now, now, now we become to a realization that that, that that basis for that way of thinking about human sexuality is just a local parochial agricultural matter and it has no basis in any kind of sensible ethics at all. And, and so we resist it. But if you if you give comfort and supplies, we've learned to say now, to the churches, and then and you let them, you know, you say, oh, just carry on, chaps, you know, because even though what you say is not true, it does comfort some people, and it gives, and this their vague feelings of uh, you know cosmological um, mystery are satisfied by it. You will continue to um, allow all the rest of that stuff to go on, and and that I think is has to be part of the story of resisting that way of thinking about the universe because of the consequences it has on individual lives. Okay, I'm going to interrupt you. I'm going to reveal myself as the goalkeeper of Nita Albion. <laughs> that's all. In fact, AC Grayling gave us a team talk at the beginning which he said, I'm going to inspire you. And inspire means breathe in. What I'm going to say is don't get to breathe out. <laughs> that's all he said. It was enough. Okay, now we've got some time for discussion, and uh, there's also microphones going around. And when I ask you, say it's your turn to give a question, if you could wait for the microphone to come to you and use the microphone, that will help everybody. And if uh, Anthony, in particular, if you could use your microphone as well, so that everybody can hear what you're saying. Um, right, uh, hands up. Okay, there's one in the middle here. If you could keep it brief and not just make a, a kind of statement of your own. That'd be great. Oh dear. Okay. I'll try and do that. Um, very interesting conversation. I'm slightly disappointed that we haven't talked more about death because death is so often cited as being inextricably linked to religion. Uh, it does explain, uh, in my view, why the tooth fairy and Santa don't persist where God does. The tooth fairy and Santa don't save you from death. Uh, the irrationality also which attaches to people's want to believe also have a, a curious symmetry and correspondence to our irrationality when confronted with death. We will do anything to deny death and a man drowning will do insane and irrational things just to live and such is the drowning argument of a man trying to defend a religion. Uh, almost everything that you said I could explain, I think fairly eloquently have at the time, in terms of our denial of death but I'd be very interested to hear some of the conversations, some of the points raised framed in terms of that. Thank you very much. That was well put. Um, we take a couple more and then we'll come back, if that's all right. So we'll keep going. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah okay, we'll go straight back. Uh, my question is uh, in regards to the comment uh, that uh, Tim made about if people are happy, then so be it. Let them find happiness in religion. Uh, 
but what happens when, for example, death or a situation um, where children tell their parents um, they're homosexual, um, et cetera, et cetera. There are so many things that people are confronted with and they're no longer happy with the religion and what religion has taught them or kind of what the dogma um, persists. Um, so that, that was my question. Thank you. Actually, we have two questions on death, so let's hold, let's hold it at that and, uh, before we go off in, into other topics. So, death. Yes, well, thank you very much. I mean, death, obviously, so I, I agree with what you say. I mean, bear in mind that I'm, I'm trying to understand what religion is and what its source might be in us. Um, um, and the idea of having to come to terms with the fact of our own death um, is clearly a central thing. It's, but because there, there is a, and I think even I think even Anthony would admit that there's a sense of mystery about death. That death is hard. To, your own death is hard to understand. I mean, Wittgenstein said um, death is not an event in life. And um, what uh, when the world? I think he said something like. Um, um, what has history to do with me? Mine is the first and only world. You know, he's an immense egoist, right? But this idea that somehow things, this, this sense that how do things just come to an end when you die and is, is a mystery. It can feel to be a mystery. I mean, to some people it isn't a mystery, and, and that's why I say there is a, there is an impulse in some people and not not in others. Um, but um, I, on the question of people finding happiness, yeah. Oh, what I meant by that was. There can be occasions when it's just it's just better for people to have it might be better for them to have um, a false belief in something. I don't mean it's always better, and I I actually agree with Anthony that um, this, this, the secular way of life is a perfectly good way of life and has much more to recommend it than religion. If you look at religious the, the history of religion and how people have been treated, it's to, so I only meant in, in some cases you know. It, better for someone to believe something false and be happy. Uh, on the question of death, uh, um, it, it is a very interesting and um, important topi topic, not least because uh, it, it seems as though those who are afraid of death, uh, made anxious by the fact of the inevitability of death, tend to be rather younger people, and that older people are not all that frightened of death, partly because it, you know, you're looking forward to a rest and one thing. But, but it, it's because uh, the, the fear of death or anxiety about death is not really about death. It's about not achieving or not succeeding or not getting somewhere where you, you want to get. It's a kind of displaced anxiety, uh, um, which is a very characteristic thing uh, among the young. I mean, you know, m m most of us, when we're around about 21, um, are terrified of, of dying. And it's when we get a bit over 21 that we start to think, well, actually, that's really not a problem because death is not a part of life. It's, you, know, you might experience your dying. You're not going to experience being dead. It's not going to be any different from you know, before you were born or anything. So that's not a problem. Um, the, the, the real issue is try, trying to do something which is worthwhile um, now, you know, get on with it. After all, life is very short. I'm very fond of reminding people that a human lifespan is less than a thousand months long, which for people who are frightened of death makes them seriously worried, especially because they're going to be asleep for a third of that time, and the other third of that time they're going to be in the bath or in Tesco's or something, so they get really worried about how much time them. But it's, it's really, it, it, it turns out that the idea of uh, extinction, the idea that there is a definite limit to, to one's existence, and that after that you're not part of the story any longer and you're not going to 
experience it, um, releases you from what is this kind of subconscious uh, attempt to imagine being dead, like being shut in a coffin and buried underground or disappearing off into that furnace or something. That's what people are afraid of. And, and that you can't be afraid of, of nothing, <laughs> uh, which is what being dead is all about, really. So uh, I think it becomes less of an anxiety, except for people who think, like my, my, um, my first wife's father, my first father-in-law, I've had a succession of them, he um, <laughs> was a Catholic, and he was terrified of dying, terrified of dying. It was, it was a heart-wrenching thing to see how scared he was when he was an old man, and he was dying, and he was ill how frightened he was because the things that he'd done that he thought were going to get him into trouble afterwards. I thought that was cruel, cruelty. Thank you. Uh, now we've got lots and lots of people who'd like to ask questions. I'm going to take one at the back there. No, at the back, right at the back. Thanks. He was first. No, well, I saw him. Hi, thank you. Um, I, I, um, I'm an atheist as I understand it and um, my children were brought up as atheists. Um, but these children can't help but wonder about things you've discussed tonight. Uh, and, you know, and even as children, as small children, they played games, and these games were very imaginative, things you've discussed. And to me, that was a kind of straining after metaphysics. And almost a sort of, although they're atheist, this sort of thing is kind of innate. This desire is innate. Um, and I don't think, as you said, that it's straining after narrative. I don't think it's that, I th with a kind of teleology, beginning, middle, and end. I think it's straining after pattern, because human beings need patterns more than narrative. Um, it's just a kind of, you know, the evolution of religion, in a sense, that these atheist children are kind of, you know, amateur metaphysicians. That's the, the. That's what I think. You know, maybe you might comment on that. Thank you very much. And I uh, would we'll again take another the chap there. Yeah. Actually, my question is regarding the definition of religion, which I haven't heard anything from you too. So it seems to me that you are just defining religion based on a bunch of superstitions. But don't you think there is an element of logic in religion also? However, I personally think that religion is based on faith and not question. But there is also, I think, in more details, there are elements of logic in religion. But it seems to me that you're both looking at religion as a bunch of superstitions. Thank you. Right. Um, how related? Can, can I say something about the atheist yeah. children thing? I mean, the, the interesting thing about, about children, of course, is that for very good evolutionary reasons, they are born to be maximally credulous. They will believe anything that they're told by adults, and for the very important reason that their survival depends upon it. And, and so, so they accept anything if they're responsible adults or adults they take to be responsible in their environment they will believe those things until they get to the age when they want to start questioning and so on that's usually uh, after the onset of puberty this is why we're all told to have a dog if you have teenage children so somebody's happy to see you when you get home that kind of thing and that, this, is, this is when they cease to agree with you and, and, and want not to take the view that you took you're very lucky to have brought them up as atheists and they didn't become nuns and monks and things but uh, but th this idea that there is there is something innate in us that strives after the transcendent, that the, you know the God concept is is built into us in some way. Well, you know, 1.3 billion Chinese people just prove that to be completely wrong because they don't have the kind of deity that the Judeo-Christian tradition has, nor indeed did the predecessors of the 
European Christian tradition uh, have that conception of deity. Chinese didn't. They talk about Tian, about uh, you know heaven and the rule of heaven and so on. But they don't mean a personal God who's interested in, in creation uh, and has handed down the Ten Commandments any more than the Stoics when they talk about the logos or the the order of things, and they sometimes use the word uh, Deus to, to describe that. But they didn't mean God in our sense either. So this idea that there's some sort of innate uh, psychological predisposition to believe in a creator, father-like uh, deity, that, that, that's just an artifact of our tradition of religious thinking. Um, could, could I say something about children? Because um, there's another aspect to children um, which is very relevant, which I think, and, and I agree with you about, about this, that, um, so I read somewhere, someone said recently that philosophy is, is the asking of questions that come naturally to children using the methods that come naturally to lawyers. And, uh, and it's true, actually, that, that philosophical questions do come very naturally to children. I, I think Anthony says children are, are, are hardwired to believe what they're told, but also from a very early age, before puberty, children question everything. Children, and they, they look for patterns and they look for order. Um, and but the two things are quite uh, consistent, of course. Uh, of course, yeah, they are. yeah, yeah. I'm not. It's just an extra thing. Yeah, yeah. On, on the question of superstition, I mean, superstition is a derog derogatory or pejorative term, I guess. Um, I, um, since I was starting from the point of view of an atheist, I, I say that um, central claims of you know many of the religions of the world are not true. Right? Um, to say that. I, I want to say more than that they're superstitions. I think superstitions are, are things like not walking under ladders, something that has no, that involves no pattern or order, or as you say, logic. I think there is an attempt to find a pattern in the world. I don't think, I want to say it's not like a scientific attempt, but it's something else, um, even though I think it's not based on truth, actually. I mean, oh, sorry, on the question of faith also. I mean, I think Mark Twain, of course, who was a, a very trenchant uh, atheist, defined faith as believing what you know ain't so. And he's, he's not quite right about that in a way because a, a lot of people of, of faith, and this is a characteristic of, uh, of very devout uh, Muslims, for example, it's just not true of them that they believe what they know isn't the case. They really believe it. I mean, it's a very passionately held, a very deeply rooted conviction. And this is because the um, intellectual environment in which they are brought up and their religious training from a very early age um, makes it terribly difficult for a person of, uh, for, uh, who is brought up in a Muslim culture as a Muslim ever to uh, uh, become an apostate. It's very difficult psychologically and in all sorts of other ways, let alone the social reinforcement of the religion, because it is so deeply imbued in them. And yet if you point out to people, 99% of people have the religion they do because of the accident of where they were born and who their parents were. And it's not a matter of <coughs> conviction or education or anything else. It's a, it's a, that, it's, that is the reason uh, why it's happened. And you challenge them with that thought. You know, you are passionately convinced of the truth of your religion because of that accident of your uh, biography. And, uh, of course, it's a very challenging thing to be, uh, to have pointed out to you. Thank you. Uh, question here, yeah. I'm sure that 
um, both of you have talked to your colleagues in the academic world who are either scientists or perhaps one or two other philosophers who have sincere religious faith. I've always wondered about these people, and I wondered whether you've had any answers in, the, in your search for the understanding of religious faith from those people. So I don't know if people heard that, but it's about whether you have had friends or colleagues who are believers and that maybe they've given you some kind of insight into or an understanding of faith that you won't get it when you're on the atheist side of things. I did once meet a... Um, <laughs> so that, that's a bit of a joke. But, but when, when you do come across... A, when you do come across such people, it reminds you of what uh, um, F.H. Bradley said about metaphysics, that it's the search for reasons to prop up your prejudices. You know? Yeah, I think... Um, Were they your friends? I don't know. But it didn't take much to infer that they weren't all that much of my friends. I think I wouldn't want to generalise from some of the... I mean, I do have a number of colleagues in philosophy, and, and I know scientists who are, are religious. Um, I think I wouldn't want to generalise too much about their, from, from their justifications to um, what I'm calling this general religious sentiment or impulse, because um, often it's based on a very, um, a very intellectual conception of what what the what their doctrines are, um, and I th and I think that that isn't common to all to, to the central core of, of religion, that intellectual conception. Okay, could you put your hands up again for it? Let's see where people are. Yeah, this gentleman's been waiting a long time. Yeah. Thank you. Um, right. Um, at, the, at the beginning, um, Anthony um, said that um, uh, there was something about. Um, could you speak into the microphone a bit more, just? Yes, yes. I, I was interested in, in, in starting off the, the, the remarks made by the speaker. Well, you, did, you did well when you said yes, but then you took it away. I'm sorry. Yes. Um, let me jump to what uh, Tim was saying about um, religion in some sense attempting to frame certain categories or certain notions of the way the world is. And Anthony acknowledging at the minute, at the beginning, that that was the more fundamental, more important question, perhaps, than whether or not there is a God, which may be, to some extent, a naming problem. If that being the case, um, I'm, I, I confess that I'm a little um, uh, disappointed with the terms of the discussion, because it ought, I think, to be a discussion not just about the phenomenon of religion, but what religion has at its best attempted to frame. And I wonder whether you think that in a world where religion uh, culturally, which is cultural, dies away, disappears, whether we will be left with the good things, the, the better understanding, or whether there are some objects um, of, of understanding in the world that religion, in spite of its terrible scandals, has managed to express and left us with. Will these just be artifacts left around like music, art, and so on? Or uh, will we be just left lying on the beach, as Anthony perhaps suggested, thinking, well, this is bliss, it, indeed it is. Won't we still want to understand these categories, uh, whether they're described as ineffable 
categories or moral categories, the, the seething of the universe, uh, not just um, how things get there, but how we, how, these, how we form categories, how we separate, why there's anything there at all. Like, as, as thank, you, thank, you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Uh, you take another one and then we'll, we'll come in down here. I think I was very interested to hear Tim Crane's view about an explanation for religion because I think the most interesting thing is the point about the debate between atheists and theists and why it, 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 it's not resolved is because in some ways they speak in the wrong terms. In other words, here you, you can't necessarily use a scientific methodology because most people who look at it find that they can't prove the existence of God or disprove. So there's this element which Tim highlighted of the inexplicable and mystery. Now, you know, when people like Anthony Kenny and John Cottingham have talked about this, you know, religious feeling comes from an openness <coughs> of mind and it's displayed in things, similar phenomena, to musical experience, to art, to poetry. Anthony Kenny speaks a lot about this. So perhaps you know, agnosticism is, is actually the best route. The other thing is, when on a moral ground, when you say about religions, of course, having caused a lot of harm in the world, which they have, I don't know whether that's peculiar to religious philosophies, because what has to be made clear is that if you look at the 20th century, huge death was called by, caused by secular philosophies in Stalinist Russia, or indeed in Hitler's Germany. These were secular. So what, what Anthony was talking about, accusing religions which can be sabotaged by people, this, this is not just peculiar to religious philosophies. Excellent. I'll, I'll hold it there. We've got two, two related questions on, on uh, what might be lost in a world without religion and, and its role in art and its significance in, in its relationship to art and poetry and music and so on but also a uh, further supplementary question on um, the murderousness of human beings in general rather than particularly uh, religious human beings. Well, on, on the question of what would be lost if there were no, no religion, uh, if we looked at our contemporary society here in the UK um, now uh, and asked if the, the, the churches closed their doors and the vicars went away, what would be lost? Would people... Uh, stop meeting their friends in pubs or going to the theatre or going to concerts? Would they stop uh, having weddings and funerals? Would there be no more corporate uh, enterprises like marathons and uh, um, V-Day celebrations and uh, November the 11th? And the answer is no. The, the fact of the matter is that the, the, the people, we, we need these, these community expressions of, of solidarity and, and community. All the way from our family um, gatherings to our our sort of national trooping the colour type uh, events, uh, and we do it, you know, by the dozen. And the religious observance that goes on in our contemporary society is uh, only a small part of that. So uh, I personally think that um, our ingenuity, our creativity, and our need for these sorts of things would supply that gap pretty quickly. And in fact, it's in our secularised societies pretty well supplied already. On the point that you raised, um, you very eloquently raised two very um, familiar uh, lines of argument, one, one being about the um, fact that you can't prove, disprove that there is a deity. At this point, and this is, this is not a commercial breakaway, I think, I just have to mention um, 
because Tim, Tim mentioned a, a little polem highly polemical book that I did called Against All Gods, which was actually a collection of Guardian articles having a real kick at the bishop's ankles. And so it's highly polemical. And, and some people said to me, look, you know, well, why not do one which is a little bit more considered than that? With some, uh, it's just come out, by the way, a couple of months ago. It's called To Set Prometheus Free. The from price publisher, do same publisher as the other one. Uh, and and I, do, I do try to set out in that the, the arguments about whether you can uh, provide a proof of the non-existence of something of God and so on, which you can do. I'll go into the details of it if you want now, but Not I would now. rather you have a look at that. I, I won't now. <laughs> but just to say, it is a canard that the, the great uh, um, totalitarianisms of the 20th century with the monstrous uh, harm that they inflicted on, on humanity did it in the name of atheism or secularism or because they were atheists or secularists. Stalin was uh, educated in a seminary. Hitler was a Catholic. I mean, these facts are irrelevant to what they did, apart from the fact that um, you know you can go and see the saints of, of, uh, of communism, Soviet communism anyway, in their glass cases, much as you can in any cathedral in, in Italy. They borrowed many of their tropes and, and you know, items of rhetoric from uh, a, a more ancient tradition for a very good reason, which is that all totalitarianisms, whether they're religious or secular, uh, share one thing in common. That is, they are monolithic ideologies that claim to have the one great truth, and everybody's got to sign up for it, and if you don't, you're in trouble. That's what Torquemada did, that's what Stalin did. That, that's the, what the Enlightenment project was about, was breaking free of these totalitarianisms of absolute monarchy and the control over the mind and the, and the life of individuals by the church. Uh, and, the, 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 and Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and all the dictators you can name in the 20th century were doing exactly the same thing. So, you know, the, the thing that one objects to is the totalizing ambition of these great monolithic ideologies to own our lives and our minds and our thoughts. I mean, never forget that for centuries the church said you are not allowed to think on pain of death any differently from what we say. That's why they burn people at the stake for thinking that the earth went around the sun instead of the other way around. It's shocking when you think about it. If you really cast your mind back into the torture and, and the murder committed in the name of defending an ideology. Because it says in Psalm 102, he hath laid the foundations of the earth that it may not be moved forever. And thousands of people died because of it because they, they disagreed with it. That's shocking when you think about it. It's not just a you know sort of rhetorical thing. All the churches did a lot of harm in the past. All these monolithic ideologies have done terrible harm and the, the, the thing which has survived from, from the enlightenment in our own time, what, what I like to think of as the enlightenment project is individual autonomy, uh, autonomy liberty of thought, uh, pluralism, allowing diversity of opinions and so on against which all those monoliths, monolithic systems have uh, militated. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Tim, come something, yeah. sorry. <coughs> Just very briefly and your question is very interesting and I don't I don't really have a very um, deep answer to it, but since I was distinguishing between a certain kind of temperament or a certain kind of attitude to the, to the world, and so it's a religious temperament or impulse, um, and, and the non-religious temperament, I don't have a religious temperament, so I, if, as far as my sense of what's valuable in the world is concerned, I wouldn't lament the, the, the withering away of religion, although I think it's very unlikely. Um, um, However, there, I think there is something that would be lost, which I think, and you can see it's being lost in a certain way, which is that um, a certain kind of speculation would disappear. Um, some kind of speculation that, that tried to confront um, um, 
the impossible or the fact of death, you know, in a, in a certain kind of way. And that that's a kind of speculation that's associated with with in our, in our culture with Christian thought, or it has its origins, I think, in Christian thought. And that that would I th I could see that dis just disappearing and becoming as unintelligible to us as. Neoplatonic thought. I must I just on this, I, I've always found the thought about the impossible as actually quite difficult. <laughs> what, what, what is that idea about the impossible? The impossible. Well, um, I suppose I mean to think, trying to think beyond um, the limits of our experience, trying to think about um, how things. Um, the, the contradictions of, that we find when we try and um, think about, say, does the world have a beginning in time? And either way, you're stuck. Because if it does, when, did, when was that beginning in time? Well, then name the beginning in time, what happened before it? And then you think, okay, well, it didn't have a beginning in time. And then you think, how can it not have it? just went on and on and on? And this leads your thought to paradox and, and impossibility and trying to come to terms with that. You know, Kant said this was one of the paradoxes of pure reason. And if I may just say it to your point, I mean, I, unlike Anthony, I, I think it's more interesting from a theoretical point of view and from an intellectual point of view to, to consider the differences between, between religion and, say, communism, um, I mean, the communist regimes of the 20th century, uh, as opposed to the similarities. Anthony wants to stress the similarities. I'm, I'd be more interested in the differences myself. Um, and as for the first point, I agree with you. Okay, uh, I'm sorry, Sam. Uh, there is, uh, I have to uh, just respond to what, what one thing what Tim said there. Tim, be rather beautifully, actually, shot yourself in the foot there, if I, if I may say. <laughs> because um, speculation about whether the world had a beginning in time, thinking about that, that kind of question, is so characteristically pre Socratic and Parmenidean, Zeno over Lear and the paradoxes and things. Nothing whatever to do with religion. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the Greek philosophers were thinking about those things. It's the philosophical mind and impetus which tries to grapple with those sorts of questions. And you don't need uh, to, to contextualise it in the framework of, of religion any more than you than you can't enjoy music or a walk in the country or uh, you know your lover's touch. Uh, unless you're religious, so, you know, n n nobody would agree with that. You don't need that extra dimension. And you, for that question, you don't. To the point. My I foot, think that might prove the impossible shot. too. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I wasn't quite sure from what, what you both said whether you think that uh, religion is really in its death throes or whether the secularists are winning. So <clears throat> I would like to ask you whether you think there's a need for the atheists and the secularists to become more assertive. Thank you. And uh, gentlemen there, yeah. Thanks, hello. Um, do atheists have any time to talk to fundamentalists? And is it possible to talk to a fundamentalist, religious fundamentalist, without becoming yourself a fundamentalist? Is it possible to sustain rational, coherent debate with someone that wants to carry bombs in airplanes? Is there, is there room for conversation there? Simon Blackburn in this building said it was a very, very difficult conversation, but it had to be had. That's what he said. Thank you. Thank you. OK. Uh, take a vote. Tim? Yeah, if, I, if I'm just quickly, because we are, we are running short of time, I, I, I think um, 
whether atheists should become more assertive, as you say, very much depends on where they are. Um, I think in this country, I don't see. There's, I mean, there, 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 we have a, the rule of law is largely immune from the infiltration of, of religion. Um, I think in America, if I had children, and I wouldn't want them to be taught creationism in schools, that would be a concern of mine. So there, there would be a need to be more assertive. Um, as for whether religion is dying out, I, that's, I, think it, I, I think it isn't, but I'm not quite sure how to figure that out. I mean, well, of course, in Europe it is. It's, it's just shrinking, but in the rest of the other parts, parts of the world, it doesn't seem to be. And the conversation with the fundamentalist? Yeah, that's very difficult. Okay. <laughs> I agree with my colleague Blackburn. <laughs> well, well, the truth is that uh, atheists are becoming more assertive, and um, I, I think it was um, Huxley, uh, Darwin's bulldog, who, in a letter to um, Darwin, said uh, that um, bishops are like pigs. Um, you poke one and they all squeal and said and well, what's happened is that the atheists have, have uh, become more assertive and the response from people of religion has been you know absolutely horrified that they should be so robust in their criticism and and so disrespectful and everything forgetting that when they were on the front foot that's the religious guys they didn't use hard words and, and difficult arguments against their opponents they just killed them I mean it was a you know a, a bit of asymmetry there and so there's no reason why the atheists shouldn't shouldn't be as assertive as they like, because there's quite a lot at stake, including education, including funding for scientific research, including uh, the, the, the possibility of there being extremists on, in all religions who are prepared. You know, the saying is, my faith is what I die for and dogma is what I kill for. And alas, you know, there are people who, who have done it in the streets of this very city not, not too many years ago. Dialogue with the fundamentalists, I think Simon meant that we've got to talk to those people who are angry and hurt because they feel disrespected and their religion is under attack. And we have to find some way of, of coaxing them out of that mindset and saying, look, we're not just trying to stop you, we disagree with you, we're not trying to stop you from believing it, but you know, you've got to recognize that it's your belief and you're not entitled to impose it on the rest of us in, in certain ways. Uh, that, that kind of dialogue is, is important. But you, an implication of your question is, if you talk to fundamentalists uh, as an atheist, you become an atheist fundamentalist. And I have to say, I find the idea of a fundamentalist atheist very amusing. Because if I ask myself, what is a non-fundamentalist atheist? Is this somebody who believes that there is a bit of a god? Sort of like <laughs> a left buttock, as it might be. <laughs> or, or that gods exist just one day a week on Sundays, or something like that. And uh, you know, it's a kind of nonsense. I mean, if you're an atheist, it's like you don't collect stamps, you don't believe in that. As Tim said earlier, you know, not, not a great deal follows from what, although you might be inclined to, to certain sorts of views. Uh, and, but you can't be a fundamentalist. But alas, there are all sorts of fundamentalists and not just religious ones in our world. Well, I don't know what these guys are on, but I do want some of it myself. <laughs> uh, but now we've, we have gone over time, in fact, so I'm really sorry we can't take any more questions, which means that we can just thank them in the traditional way.